According to Donald Cameron, weak workers were weak because they simply couldn't cope with industrial conditions. You know, it wasn't society that was wrong. It was personal mental weakness in the face of brutalism. If you don't like it, you're weak. And this is an actual claim Cameron made in his 1946 paper, Frontiers of Social Psychiatry. So does he work for Amazon now? Yes, he does, actually. <laughs> Welcome back to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we talk about dead people. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, George. Say hi, George. Good evening. Good evening to you, sir. We hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down various members of the odd and exciting and sometimes awful family that is humanity. The way this works is that George and I will do our amateurs best to give a basic account of the major events in the life of a now-dead person and give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is much harder to do, but we always try anyway. And since it's been a while since we've actually been trying, but uh, we've decided to come back, and we're worse than ever. So, George, who do we have this week? We have everyone's favorite acronym, the ATF, Atrocities, Terror, and Failure. <laughs> you know... I, I don't mean to break character, but I hate Waco less and less these days. Yeah, it's kind of unfortunate that we covered David Koresh in a time before the uh, the Netflix special, or the technically the Paramount video special picked up by Netflix. So we really couldn't go, uh, you know, full balls to the wall, fuck the government mode yet. But now we can, can't we? You know it, and we're going to. So because we can't cover the great Waco Boogaloo, who will we be actually covering? We will be covering Donald. Is there a Y pronunciation in the middle name? Is it Ewan? I have no idea. Or it, it, it's Scottish. Probably Ewan. Yeah, probably Donald okay. Ewan Cameron. Press S to spit. S. S. Can I just say right out of the gate that the government has no moral or legal authority to judge or prosecute anybody and anyone who believes they still do is complicit in their schemes? I'll allow it. <laughs> and now that we've officially earned the honor of being on a government watch list that literally everyone is on at this point, uh, and by the way, they listen to this podcast, you know they do, and if they don't, you know they will after this, <laughs> I think it's time to head down to the History Lab, do the episode, and then start stacking sandbags. You haven't started yet? Jeez. I'm way behind. <laughs> What do you get when you combine professional leeches and baby eaters with a false democracy in a population that has had just about enough? You know exactly what you get. And Donald Ewan Cameron is going to give you one more reason to stop worrying and love the TNT block in Minecraft. This man was perhaps the most heinous criminal ever to be funded by your tax dollars. He also subjected the entirety of Western civilization to mental torture and abuse for about 60 years, and then sold the baby eaters a plethora of techniques to keep doing it to you forever. And you've probably never heard his name. So, George, if there was one person you would like to see get vanned by the CIA, who would that be, and where would you like them to be imprisoned? Well, that's a hard one to answer, since... Usually my answer is who do I want bad things to happen to is the CIA. So I don't know. I probably have to go with, um, I don't know, maybe maybe let's go with the FBI. Maybe J. Edgar Hoover and uh, you can imprison him in a poppy field in Afghanistan since the CIA already has those set up. It'll be easy. They won't have to get a new facility. 
Yeah, they really are already vanning each other, aren't they? <laughs> and what about you, Aaron? If there was one person you would like to see van, who would it be? Uh, all of the media. All of them. Into a van right now. That, and you know where I'd like to send them? That's going to be a big van. I know, it's a very big van. <laughs> Got a big old paddy wagon. Uh, I would send them to a prison where they had to watch themselves and their behavior in the media for the last 20 years on repeat again and again and again so they know what it's like to be talked to like you're a bug. <laughs> I don't know. I but, feel like they're uh, all such narcissists they'd enjoy to just seeing themselves on repeat for 20 years. You're right. Damn it. Okay, well, I failed that question, so... Um, <laughs> yeehaw! Um, that one's for Texas. Computer, please bring up Donald Ewan Cameron. There we go. Now, George, I ask you to please kindly describe the physical appearance of the creature pictured below. Um, oh, he's got some pretty impressive chest muscles. Uh, I've got to say that. Like, definitely hits the gym a lot. Um, he is standing in a lake of fire. Oh. Uh, like, And also has a pitchfork. And uh, I think that's actually just the devil. Oh, yeah, ah, uh, that's... I accidentally put it in the wrong picture. Here's the real one! I don't know what to make of this. Um, I don't know, <laughs> Some, somehow it's it's even worse. It's deeply unsettling. The, the way the plaid on his lapels just conflicts with the plaid on the collar. It's kind of weird. Anyway, this is just a kindly but sinister looking old man with kind of big nerdy glasses, a little bit of a comb over, kind of a sinister nose and mouth region. He's, he's got like a weird expression on his face, like he thinks he's God and is about to torment you for eternity. And he's also wearing a stupid plaid jacket. Oh, and don't forget the glasses. No, I mentioned them. Can't forget those glasses. Oh, you did. I wasn't listening. <laughs> Sorry. Damn, um, Aaron. Yeah, I know. I, I've been out of the game for so long at this point um, that I predict my con my constitution will fail before <laughs> the end of this uh, before the end of this podcast episode. <clears throat> we talk about dead people. Now there's a name I've not heard in a long while. <laughs> we are dead people. <laughs> uh. We might be after this episode, I don't oh, know. Oh, then we okay. can do an so, episode on ourselves. Last episode, Aaron and George. <laughs> <laughs> and presumably James by extension. All right, so, before we begin our story, I would like to make it clear that we are back by popular demand and because a listener who really likes the show bribed us with a massive donation. So, we're basically the government if the government had popular demand. Uh, and we don't really get big donations very often, which is likely because in the internet economy, all the money goes to cam girls and comes from simps who aren't the kind of people who care much about history or anything at all that matters, if we're being honest. Uh, but don't worry, not to worry. I'm not bitter and I'm not judging. It's not the f their fault they are the way they are. It's Donald Ewan Cameron's. So, thank you for that, Clayton. We can now officially designate you a non-simp supporter of good things that aren't Disney. You now have the We Talk About Dead People stamp of non-simphood. Conduct your office proudly! Now let's begin. Far away, in a magical place sometimes known as Scotland, there is a town sheltered from the north and east winds by the Ock Hill Hills. It lies northwards of Stirling, on the Allen Water, a tributary of the River Forth. It is known as 
Bridge of Allen. Who's Allen? Uh, I have no idea. (laughs) The town has seen much history since Allen found it um, and presumably built a bridge there. In 1645, the Duke of Argyle had passed through during the Wars of the Three Kingdoms on his way to the Battle of Kill Sith. Was he wearing the socks? Which was a battle. What? Was he wearing the socks? The socks. Argyle socks. Oh, definitely. Good. He was wearing on he was wearing Argyle socks on all of his limbs. Um, but yes, you may have noticed that this battle was known as Kill Sith, which of course was a battle that Sith psychopath lost horribly. Uh, in 1745, Bridge of Allen uh, was occupied by the Jacobites, Highlanders who would charge a toll for way across the bridge. And in 1850, the Laird of Westerton laid out plans to make this village the best it could be. It was to have beautiful homes, wide roads, gardens, and a fountain on Market Street. By the time of the 1920s and following the Great War, the town seemed somehow different. An industrialist had constructed a park and a memorial for those sons of Bridge of Allen who had died in the war. The wide streets and the fountains seemed to somehow matter less now. The industrialists themselves seemed to be to blame in some way for the losses but no one knew exactly how. In 1901, a Presbyterian minister and his wife hailing from Bridge of Allen welcomed a son into the world. They would name him Donald Ewan Cameron. Now, Cameron isn't just a random last name. It was a Highlander clan name. And Donald isn't a random first name either because the Cameron clan had a habit of having chiefs named Donald Cameron. In fact, the chief of the Cameron clan today is named Donald. (laughs) Coincidence? I I think not. It's not. They're cloning each other. Or they're cloning themselves so they can live forever. I I knew the Scots were up to something. It's always the Scots. Anyway, uh, we've got the Scots on tape. Trust me. All right. So the Cameron clan historically held three castles. There was Tall Castle, built by Ewan Cameron in the 15th century, but torn down by his great-great-great-grandson, Sir Ewan Cameron of Lochiel. I'm just trying to say things that sound Scottish. Who was the 17th century, uh, chief of Camerons? Sir Ewan Cameron then built another castle called Achnacary Castle. In 1802, Donald Cameron, 22nd chief of Camerons, built the third castle, though it's more like a mansion, near Achnacary after buying it back from the British government. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> I didn't miss talking about the British, I'll tell you that much. I, I mean, I would say that, you know, I'd forgotten about them, but sadly, I can never forget. Right. <laughs> anyway, so our guy named Donald Ewan Cameron comes from Royal Cameron Blood. The elite Cameron family is largely composed of, you guessed it, bankers, politicians, lawyers, etc., etc., and it's connected to the Levita family, a German-Jewish finance family, specifically Emil Levita, who directed the Chartered Bank of India, Australia, and China. Another relation to our Donald Ewan Cameron is Sir Ewan Cameron, a completely different guy, who was a British banker who lived between 1841 and 1908 and was the man who arranged loans from the Rothschild family to the Empire of Japan during the Russo-Japanese War. Our Donald Ewan Cameron, the one we're actually talking about, is also related to Boris Johnson. Fun fact! So, now that I sound like a crazy person for saying all that, I assure you that I am not. Uh, It's all right there in public record if you want to verify it for yourself, and uh, you can find it sourced on Wikipedia. It's hysterical. Anyway. 
So is any of that Almost, important? Yes. Yes, it is. Okay. Not, not like specifically like, oh man, like that's, you know, that's specific. It's just, I'm trying to portray, uh, essentially how these very old families sort of operate with one another. Does that make sense? Gotcha. Cause, cause it comes into play a lot. Okay. So, <clears throat> let's see. It was, okay. So here's the thing. It was really hard to find anything about this man's early life aside from where he was born, what year, etc. You know, you couldn't find any stories about like him being smart and outdoing the other students. You know, it's not like this Einstein stuff where it's like, oh, he was the, he was the loner. It's just like, oh, he went to high, like I found a paper that said he went to a Scottish high school from 1908 to 1913. And that's about all I could find. Then he went to Glasgow Academy from 1913 to 1919 and the University of Glasgow, where he earned his MB. After that, he would earn a diploma in psychological medicine from the University of London. And finally, after that, he was able to achieve his MD in Glasgow in 1936-36. Illuminati confirmed. That's a joke, by the way. <sighs> I knew this was going to happen. <laughs> We're going to talk about schizos, believe me. All right. So from what I could tell, Donald Ewan Cameron was just a nerd. Um, he just went from school to school gathering up like, um, you know, diplomas and certifications and, you know, just like his I academic resent career. this description. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying this is what he was doing. <laughs> the point is he got a whole bunch of education under his belt and he was fresh for the picking by, you know, elite uh, universities and, and companies and things like that. He's a very educated, trained scientist. I'll let you um, know when the elites try to co-opt me. Okay. Uh, that or will, will I? <laughs> you'll, you'll try from the back of a van, I can tell you that much. <laughs> anyway, so as far as I can tell, his first real job was at the Glasgow Royal Mental Hospital where he served as an assistant medical officer. Here he ran into the likes of Sir David Henderson, who was a student training a... Jesus. People dropping shit above me. Uh, Sir David Henderson was a student training a Swiss, uh, Swiss, Swiss, Swiss psychiatrist named Adolf Meyer, who would later serve on behalf of the American Eugenics Society for 12 years. Um, I believe he was the head of it, but I can't say for sure because I didn't dig deep enough. Um, anyway, so David Henderson ended up training Donald in literal psychopathy. So basically just talking about how you can identify crazy people and like, um, what you should do to them. Right. That's ominous. No, no, it's, uh, he's, uh, getting trained in psychopathy. <laughs> um, shortly after this, he moved to the United States for more training, specifically under Adolf Meyer at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore. And after this, he went to the University of Zurich, where he learned from none other, none other than Eugene, Eugene Bleuler. Is that right, you think? Um, Bleuler, Bleuler. probably? Bleuler? Bleuler. <laughs> I just like, I'm I not just like sure. Bueller. Okay, Bleuler. <laughs> um, Eugene Bleuler had invented both the words schizophrenia and autism, by the way. Oh. Really? Yeah. Uh, yes, he was. Mm. He invented both of them. Interesting. Um, he was also, this Bloiler character, was extremely good at finding patients who were suffering from the ailments that he... I don't know if the word invented is correct, but it's what he described 
However, while he could find lots of patients suffering from the ailments, uh, he never once healed a single one of them. Not a single successful uh, healing on record. He also sterilized most of his patients uh, before they left his, uh, his offices. Oh, and uh, the majority of the ones that got away from him committed suicide, so... Uh, yeah, that's that's legit. You can find that everywhere. That's, that's uh, it seems like kind of a problematic record. Yes, very very problematic. Um, oh, oh hey, by the way, I didn't ask you beforehand, but could you break down the word schizophrenia for us? I don't know what you're assuming here, uh, but sure. <laughs> uh, so your frenes are in Greek. Your it's hard to put in one word. It's sort of whatever your internal sense is by which you sort of make judgments about things so it's not really it's not considered sort of your your heart it's more sort of a deeper like central central sort of uh place where you judge and it's where you would have wisdom in greek wisdom would be a thing that you would have in your frenes um and then so that's what frenia is and then schizo comes from the greek word for to cut so schizophrenia means that your frenes are cut in half and they're divided right okay so i think a lot of people have done a little bit of uh, youtube deep diving and stuff and they've learned about things like split personalities that's what this is okay uh I'm not a psychiatrist, but I also have a slight aside on schizophrenia uh, from a paper published. Oh, I didn't even write it down. Hold on. I got it. Uh, the Wiley periodical. Well, um, Wiley is a big publisher, which uh, so they publish tons and tons of journals. Okay, cool. Because this one came out in 2003 and it's by a guy named R. Walter Heinrichs. And this is his uh, this is from the abstract of the paper. <clears throat> Schizophrenia is a serious mental illness with a remarkably short recorded history. Unlike depression and mania, which are recognizable in ancient texts, schizophrenia-like disorder appeared rather suddenly in the psychiatric literature of the early 19th century. This could mean that the illness is a recent disease that was largely unknown in earlier times. Um, let's see here. However, establishing the population prevalence of schizophrenia in early times and therefore resolving the permanence recency debate may not be a feasible enterprise. So the, the short version of this is basically that what Heinrichs was observing in his research into the history of schizophrenia was that it largely came about in the late 18th into the 19th uh, century. Or not the 18th century, in the 19th century and it lasted into the 20th century. Um... And also, according to the DSM-5, there is no objective physical way to diagnose a person with schizophrenia. Uh, the professional observes the patient's behavior and makes a diagnosis based on the literature. And it's the only way it can be done. And while the disorder is virtually non-existent prior to the 19th century, the WHO reports that, the schi that schizophrenia is the most commonly diagnosed form of psychopathy in the world in 2020. Wow. I did not know that. That's <laughs> That's a lot. Um, for the sake of the listeners, do you want to explain what the DSM-5 is? Oh, yeah. Well, maybe you should. I'm not as crazy. <laughs> it's the sort of the big guide to mental disorders. And so it's what character, you know, it's the big list. It's like the master list that a psychiatrist can use to diagnose mental disorders. And so for every mental disorder, you know, it gives the official like list of mental disorders and then the qualifications, what makes a person, you know, diagnosable with this, what, you know, benchmarks have to be met. 
Yes, and it's it's, a, and it's a, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual is what that stands for. And gotcha. Fifth edition. I, right, and well, a lot of these definitions and diagnoses were written by the likes of Bloiler, right? And they've been largely unchanged since. Lots of them have changed, but ones like schizophrenia, it's basically the same thing. So anyway, <clears throat> after learning all the black magic about schizophrenia and autism that he could from Bloiler, Donald, Ewan Cameron, uh, made friends with A.T. Mathers, who was the principal psychiatrist in Manitoba, and eventually would move to Canada to accept a position as physician in charge of the reception unit of the Provincial Mental Hospital. In 1933, Illuminati confirmed he finally married a student from the University of Glasgow, Jean C. Rankine, and started having kids. They had four. One daughter and three sons. And I'm going to not say this joke because it's probably not a joke. Um, <laughs> uh, but anyway, so eventually, I'm just officially removing that from the not script. Eventually, this man would move once again, and this time to Massachusetts to become the director of the research division at, is it Worcester? Worcester. Wor Worcester. State Worcester. Hospital. That's too many letters in there. Anyway, it was here that he would publish his first book in 1936, Illuminati Confirmed, called Objective and Experimental Psychiatry, which I found, and uh, I read a little bit of it. How was uh, it? And I've put it... What? How was it? Oh, you'll, you'll see. Um, so I discovered in a study that he was conducting on schizophrenics and psychopaths, hey-oh, that he was administering carbon dioxide at high levels as an inhalant to allegedly cure people of their mental disorders. And I've included a rather lengthy excerpt here because I just I just want you to get a sense of how he writes. It reads like it was written by a robot. Um, I might as well have Microsoft Sam read it. <laughs> but, um, okay, so this is straight out of his book, all right? <clears throat> Carbon dioxide, and this is a category. A more effective, quote, a more effective stimulating agent was uh, sought in mixtures of carbon dioxide and oxygen, mixture, mixtures of 10 to 15% CO2 and 90 to 85% uh, O2 were used at first. The authors note that after this, they, uh, after this has been used for 5 to 20 minutes, evidence of cerebral stimulation may be observed. Definite response, however, could be always elicited if the CO2 content was increased by not more than 5% a minute up to a final concentration of 30 to 40% CO2. They consider that higher concentrations are not free from hazard. They succeeded in producing cerebral stimulation, by which they mean increased psychic function. This cerebral stimulation appeared several minutes after the cessation of the respiratory stimulation period, or uh, respiratory stimulation produced by carbon dioxide. As evidenced by, quote, by free muscular movements, animated features, and ability to carry on conversation and to comply with requests, end quote, it lasted from 2 to 25 minutes. The authors stated that after uh, from 3 to 10 minutes, inhalation of carbon dioxide and oxygen administered as previously suggested, a catatonic patient will gradually relax and some spontaneous movements of the extremities will occur. The limbs may become completely flaccid except in long-standing cases in which contractures are developed were developed. During this time, the pallor which most patients exhibit passes off and there is a flushing of the face and hands. The skin becomes moist. The eyes, which are usually closed or held in a fixed staring position, show slow movements of the eyeballs and a raising of the lids. The pupils are dilated at this time. The ocular movements are purposeful, that is, directed as if in effort to visualize surroundings. Sometimes movements of the arms and hands as if to displace the mask are observed. 
I'm going to read that one more time. Sometimes movements of the arms and hands, as if to displace the mask, are observed. In most cases, expiratory phonation is heard. When the concentration of carbon dioxide administered is rapidly increased, a stage of general anesthesia may be reached, although this is not necessary in our experience for the production of the psychic response sought. Almost done. <clears throat> During the stage of psychic stimulation, some of the patients appeared apprehensive, but it was possible to reassure them. The degree of mental clarity shown by the patients during the phase of psychic stimulation varied. In the most successful cases, it was possible to carry on a coherent conversation with the patient, who frequently showed considerable insight as to his condition. In some instances, it was possible to elicit valuable therapeutic leads, as when one patient who had shown extreme catatonic flexion of the extremities over a period of years with subsequent, uh, subs subsequent haha, contractures, stated that she would never be well again and she would never be able to stand on her legs. Many of them referred to their condition as an illness. Last paragraph. After periods varying from 2 to 25, retrograde changes begin to take place. Gradually, the voice becomes less audible. The response to questions becomes halting with long lapses. The facial expression becomes set. Eye movements cease and attention can no longer be obtained. The that just sounds like the last 25 minutes of one of those hour and 15 minute classes. <laughs> yes. Um, so the patient makes no effort to comply with commands. The muscular rigidity recurs in, in the course of two or three minutes. The patient lapses to his former condition of mutism, negativism, and complete inaccessibility. It is especially striking to note how completely the, formula muscular, uh, the former muscular state is resumed. This reproduction is faithful to the minutest degree, the same posture, the same facial grimace, and apparently the same mental state. In some cases, the lapse to the original state is remarkably sudden, so that a sentence begun is left unfinished. Did you hear any of that, out of curiosity? Oh, I was listening. Okay, I mean, I, I know, but like, it's, 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 it's science talk, so it's um, like... Yeah, I'm wondering about expiratory phonation, and if that means screaming. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, and it gets worse. Uh, it turns out, obviously, that gassing people might not be good for them, but we're, we're very happy that we had Donald here to experiment on untold numbers of patients to find out how to make people scream because they're going crazy. Um, one thing I'll point out here that I pointed out later that I should just point out is that most of these patients are basically depressed, um, they're depressed or they're anxious and they go to these psychiatrists for treatment and because there's nothing basically on the books yet saying they can't just experiment on these people, they just experiment on them. So you've got a bunch of sad people going in and getting poked with things and forced to breathe carbon dioxide at high end concentrations and well, this is, uh, this is uh, an example of the kind of science that Cameron was practicing. Because Cameron believed in a field called biological descriptive psychiatry, which basically means that he believed that mental diseases were hardwired into a person's brain. Like there was nothing you were going to do if you were going to become schizophrenic, if you were going to become manic or depressed. Or it's, there's nothing you can do. It's the way your brain is wired. So basically what he would do is just do things, random things seemingly, to people uh, who had these issues like depression or schizophrenia, as was diagnosed by Bloiler, um, and he would write down what would happen. And that was his way of finding solutions and also finding out what mental diseases people had. Or, you know, he was creating them by experimenting on sad people with carbon dioxide. But the lines are blurry, you know. <laughs> 
I mean, it reminds me of the whole ice pick lobotomy thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like, ah, your child is sad? What if we severed their brain in half? Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, well, your child can't be sad anymore. Also, you know, can't display any emotion or do anything, but it's not sad. At least they're not sad. No, it, it really just comes down to there were a bunch of um, wealthy, qualified people with old money who just like to experiment on people. That's kind of comes comes down to. So anyway, anyway, in uh, 1938, Donald Cameron moved to Albany, where he was officially certified as a psychiatrist in um, the... Uh, uh, fuck. He was officially certified as a psychiatrist. Anyway, in 1939, Illuminati confirmed he became a professor of neurology at Albany Medical College. His thinking began to expand, and he started to wonder specifically about memory and how you could control people's minds using physical means, uh, especially in regards to their memories. Seems since harmless. He oh, harmless, harmless. Um, and since he believed that all mental disorders uh, were based on the physical brain, he began diagnosing people who acted a certain way as having syndromes. Would you mind or breaking down syndrome? I know I'm asking a lot. <laughs> I mean, I I don't know if this is right, but what it would literally should literally mean would be running together. Yep, that's right. So he he called <laughs> them how, syndromes. I don't, yeah, I don't know what the how that becomes the title, but that's just his literal meaning. Well, here here's what I learned. So syndromes means running together, and he treated it like a program, so that people were hardwired to have these things that ran together that made them have. You could define with syndrome, right? You could call it a syndrome. Does that make sense? Uh, I'm still not quite tracking. So how's what 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 is running together? What things are in the way so it's like, described? Okay, he would look at a patient and he would say, "Okay, so this patient." Oh, it's is like displaying. symptoms. Like it, it's like they have this and that, you know, characteristic, and together those make up this syndrome. Right. Okay. Gotcha. Exactly. Gotcha. And syndromes are kind of plastic in that you can say, "Well, if you have five out of ten of these symptoms, you probably have such and such syndrome." Right. Okay. I got you. So that's that's how it works. It's 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 a little bit of magic, all right? So just hold on. So anyway, he's he's studying and creating new syndromes, um, just uh, observing people and being like, uh, these people act this way, and they always act this way, and they they just do it because it's hardwired into them. And he did this working as a professor at Albany Medical College for four years. And in 1943, he got a grant from none other than the Rockefeller Foundation, Illuminati confirmed, and started the Allen Memorial Institute for Psychiatry. He was the first director of this institute and was also the first chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at McGill University. This is where he began hiring psychoanalysts, psychiatrists, and biologists, etc. from all over the world to work with him at the uh, Allen Memorial Institute at McGill. Um, now... The Allen Memorial Institute was operated using what was technically called an open-door policy, which meant that any mental patient he was experimenting on or sought treatment could allegedly leave at any time. Um, and he also introduced a new method known as the day hospital, which meant that patients could come in, get experimented on or treated or whatever, and then go home every night. Um, and he did this for about two years, building research and you know building his case for his, his field of thought. Um, until 1945. And I ask you, what happened in 1945? Nothing. 
You don't have me in the script saying anything, so I'm not going to say uh, anything. Uh, well, uh, you can, okay, I'm just waiting for you to start I thought it was a rhetorical it. question. Okay, 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 sorry. Yes, in 1945, World War II came to a close. Now, there was something going on here at the end of this particular boogaloo that we've all heard of and don't like talking about. Um, yes, we really don't like talking about talking about it, and uh, unfortunately, it's it's time to talk about it. And I'm specifically referring to what are called the Nuremberg Trials. I didn't put you in here, but I'm sure you have a <laughs> some kind of a comment. I'll wait till see where we're going with this. Okay. And this is where you might need to, like, reel me in, because... I'm shooting from the hip. I haven't looked at this before. Uh, and again, amateur hour. Um, so Cameron and a bunch of other psychiatrists were invited to the Nuremberg trials specifically to conduct a psychiatric evaluation of Rudolf Hess, the former deputy Fuhrer who had flown to Scotland alone to try to negotiate peace with the Allies in 1941. I don't know if you want to say anything about him. We've been talking about covering him for a while, though. Oh, I don't, I don't know what to say about Hess because no one really knows what what the deal was with him flying to Scotland. Kind of a, gotcha. still kind of a mystery, like, what exactly his plan was. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe he saw the aliens that Hitler was summoning and decided to just get, get the hell out. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, so, analyzing Hess was the official reason that all these psychiatrists were brought to the Nuremberg trials, but the other unofficial reason, and I say unofficial because it's not in the documents it's in cameron's writings the other part of the uh of this was that at the nuremberg trials the tribunal wished to diagnose germany with a mental disorder they wanted to find out what was wrong with them it's it's literally what they wanted which is why they got cameron to come along because if they could somehow prove well cameron spoke a lot about this we'll get to uh we'll get to a paper he wrote or a book he wrote about this specific thing if they could somehow prove that the german race cameron's words not mine was inherently mental de mentally deficient in some way they could say the entire people was a danger to the rest of the world and then start applying different kinds of social strictures on them to keep them in line because the belief back then was that if they did it now and they weren't stopped they were just gonna do it again 30 years later it was sort of this sort of almost fatalism about it you know what i mean have you heard of this i have yes okay i don't i've never read anything about that before until i started reading cameron's uh books and papers here but anyways it turns out cameron wrote a book during the war called the social reorganization of germany and this book was pretty much straight racial scientism to a t which is to say he was still operating on on the belief that people are fundamentally not in control of their decisions and they just operate by the hardware that's built into them. Very, very uh, um, uh, meat computer view of the brain, right? Mm -hmm. So the good doctor, uh, he was so good. Uh, he did such a great job. You know, he diagnosed all Germans, literally all of them, and not just in Germany, around the world, as a people who are envious of those with status, worshipful of order, prone to authoritarianism, and deeply, deeply fearful of other countries. He also diagnosed them with what you might call an, originally, or an original sin, which is to say he literally stated in this work that Germans and their offspring were hardwired to dominate the world, and if they weren't treated for their mental disorders, it would be less than 30 years before they tried it again. again you know, it's pretty rich for, uh, for an Anglo talking about other people being hardwired to dominate the world. Right. <laughs> right. It's projection. <laughs>, laughs in oppressing literally 25% of the world in the 20th century. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, but that's that's the that's one of the things that we're going to run across with Cameron here is it he really does it does seem like he's projecting his own psychopathy um and uh hatred for humanity, I guess, on everybody who he deems to be um I don't know, competition maybe? I don't know how to put it. Um, this is making me very uncomfortable to talk about this, so let's, we'll just carry on. So anyway, from this standpoint that the, all the German people, and by the way, other, other people groups with, uh, problematic beliefs or, or ways of thinking, uh, Cameron proposed that the world should be organized by behavioral scientists who knew how to manipulate people into hating themselves, or being so confused about who they were that they could never rise up against any global authority ever again. And he proposed in his post-war work uh, that the United Nations should be a tool of the behavioral scientists and should be used to influence what he called, what he deemed, weak populations, such as Germans, from ever taking control of their own affairs outside of a global power structure. And he considered people who didn't like global controls to be uh, mentally deficient and weak. And he concluded that these populations must be removed from society altogether. His proposal in the social reorganization of Germany was that in order to keep Germans and other demographic groups like them, by extension, uh, in line was to either eliminate them, sterilize them, or traumatize them, which is, you know, pretty much Bloiler, all has Bloiler written all over it. Um, so trauma was the road he took, and it was the what the this group of psychiatrists, behavioral psychiatrists and psychologists uh, d decided would be done. So, uh, um, as an aside, so do you know any of the other demographic groups who were also uh, marked for elimination or yes, traumatization? Yes, I listed some of them later on, but I might as well just say them now. It was um, Americans specifically. Uh, because, you know, they had had a revolution. Um, they wanted to kind of go their own way. Uh, they didn't like, um, uh, what was it called? Uh, interventionism at the time. And uh, Cameron was, of course, trying to, was thinking in terms of a global society, not a national society. So he did list Americans, especially American Germans and American Anglos as being particularly dangerous Um and they would eventually were doomed because of their hardwiring to kill people. That's what he believed. So anyway, they decided to go with trauma to keep the people down. Um, as they believed it was not only the most humane, but they also believed it was the easiest route of control that they could conceal. And it w this is going to be deeply unpopular, but I really don't care. The first thing that he listed that had to be put to use was film. And this program began with showing the population of the world, not just Germany, but I mean, especially Germany, but Americans as well, films about concentration camps. Uh, but which concentration camps? Well, um, if you're thinking like a guy like Cameron, you're going to show the worst ones. So both German and Soviet films were used, um, and only the ones that portrayed the results of epidemics, mass starvation because of supply chains being destroyed by the conflict, only the ones that had employed the worst methods of torture, films with starving skeletal people ambling about, and they would make them too. They didn't just come from the archive. The public would see stacks of bodies being burned and children crying, and then they would make sure to tell people around the world it was all their fault and that they needed an elite UN-style government to keep them in line, or they obviously would freak out and just start killing people. So when you look at imagery from every war following this one, 
the iconic photos we see, and I, I'll point this out because I've talked about it before, the iconic photos we see from conflicts are like children screaming, um, people on fire, um, people who have like the thousand yard stare, stacks of bodies. Um, these are images used by media to essentially scare you into thinking that, well, the worst is happening right now. Um, mass graves, all that stuff is, it's a tool of the media. And I know I sound like I'm a crazy person, but remember, I am qualified to speak on media and, and, uh, maybe not history, but definitely how media was used in history. Um, so yeah, that was the play. So Kurt Vonnegut actually wrote a novel about this, portraying this method of control. It was called Harrison Bergeron. Have you heard of it? I actually have not. It's a, it's a very interesting book. They made a movie out of it, um, but I recently found it, and it's fascinating, and it's worth reading now that we all have the time, um, because it's in this book. It's portrayed the main character Harrison Bergeron is this young strapping lad, and I I've only read excerpts, but he's apparently this young strapping lad who can't figure out why everyone's scared all the time, and he gets he's like, why can't we just like do good things for the world? And he gets picked up by a group that's like controlling the world. And they, they bring him in and they're like, here, watch the, the uh, he plays him a, uh, I think, I think Beethoven or something like that. And Harrison's like, oh, this is so beautiful. And the guy says, yes, Beethoven was like one of the greatest composers ever. And then he says, but when you have Beethoven, you have this. And then he plays him a video of war, nukes, concentration camps, all this stuff. And then he says, if we don't put these systems of play these systems into uh, system of control into the into play. Um, this is what happens. You just get people killing thousands and stacks of bodies and nukes and like starvation and stuff. And Harrison's watching and he's like, I kind of see your point. And then he says, But what about Beethoven? He says, If I and the the elite guy says, If I had to choose between a world without war and a world with Beethoven, I'd put the gun to Beethoven's head myself. So I, I don't know if you find that compelling or not, um, but you know I'm saying I've, I've never I I'm familiar with Vonnegut, but I'd never heard of this particular book. Yeah, it's 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 suppressed by the media. Anyway, it's uh, anyway. So here's a fun fact also about Vonnegut, which I didn't know uh, before looking into this book. I didn't realize that he was a prisoner of war in World War II and he was fighting on the American side. And he was imprisoned in Dresden and happened to be there when the Allies firebombed the city. And he only survived by hiding in a slaughterhouse meat locker. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Isn't that the name of one of his books? Yeah, Slaughterhouse Five. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting one. That one's about becoming unstuck in time, and that, that's a that's a hell of a concept. I'll tell you what. So anyway, that's what happened. Um, a method of control was instituted based on Cameron's recommendations that were basically like, just show people lots of violence and they won't do anything because they don't like it. Um, so this this particular thing, it's, it's not about just camps, it's about the films and images they were produced that, uh, that were produced and how they were used. Again, according to Cameron's own writings, they were to be used by a board of psychiatrists on the UN to traumatize people who might cause problems to the, uh, to the order. And they were edited carefully um, to be as on-message and demoralizing and traumatizing as possible. The, these were concepts picked up from the likes of the... Uh, of um, I can never remember the guy's name. He was a Russian filmmaker. He made Battleship Potemkin. If you go watch that and you put yourself in the mindset of like a peasant in the Russian countryside, 
Like, you see a guy bayonet a carriage, like a baby carriage, and, like, blood flies on a grandma's face. Like, seriously messed up imagery. Um, so anyway. And again, we, Cameron was talking about the people of the world. In this case, he was using it specifically for the short term, short term just on Germans. But it was a program eventually meant to be rolled out to Americans as well. Um, it was traumatic imagery, bad music, propaganda, just like bad stuff. And one of the things that Cameron talked about a lot, which he learned from Bloiler, is that you have to do it to children and you have to do it in schools. Um, and Donald Cameron, as we shall see, knew you had to get them young. And there will be more on that later. So that's the that's the ugly Nuremberg trial situation. I don't know if you had a comment on that. Uh not not in particular. Okay. Are you mad yet? <laughs> oh, I've always been mad, yeah. No, it's um the Nuremberg trials are something that put it this way, no one should be proud of. And yeah. at the time, a ton of leading American, uh, both military officials as well as judges and legal scholars at the time said that it was an absolute farce. Well, one day we should talk about it because I'm starting to get to the point where I don't care what topics are off limit. I just want to know what's going on. And this this is, researching this made me go, all right, gloves off. I, I just I want to know what's going on for real. And by the way, I got all this from Cameron's notes and his books and his lectures. So this isn't just like me making up some kind of narrative. This is his narrative. So anyway, he uh, he got off. Uh, he got off. Oh, and he never stopped hating Germans, which is hilarious. Um, so later in the 40s and a bit into the, even though he worked with a ton of the, I, never mind. In the 40s and a bit into the 50s, Cameron really started lurking into the uh, lurking. <laughs> Uh, he needs to lurk more. Um, he started looking into the aging brain, which is hard because you can't really see a person's brain at different stages of life unless you have cadavers. Um, so, but he, anyway, he began researching ways to speed up braid, brain aging, which is a hell of a thing to do. He, I don't know why, but he wanted to bring dementia. He wanted to find a way to create dementia in people. Uh, okay. Yeah, um, but again, remember his motivation. He thinks that people who don't like being controlled by other people who don't have their interests in mind are weak and dangerous to global society. He decided that psychiatry must lead the global charge to beat the weakness out of people. And this is not an exaggeration. And it is also the exact same mindset of an abusive person. And I wrote out a couple of lines here just to kind of illustrate how this thinking goes. And it's basically like... <laughs> I beat her so she'll know not to cheat on me. And then his friend comes back and says, bro, you didn't, she didn't cheat on you though. And he says, but she was going to all women cheat. I've seen the studies and it's like, see what I mean? It's paranoia through and through. And it is the absolute foundation of Cameron's logic in many of his books and lectures and transcripts. You can go read them. I mean, this is his whole thing. And like, I've got a quote a little bit further down, which is just going to blow your mind. I think. Um, but I think he's just a literal coward. <laughs> is that what it sounds like to you yet? Well, it is. It does. Doesn't quite make sense that, uh, the people who he apparently is terrified of are the ones who are quote unquote weak. Yes. Seems like you it, wouldn't be afraid of the ones who were weak. Right. You'd right. be afraid of the ones who weren't weak. Right. Well, we'll 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 look more into. Okay, so we're just about to get into this. So, 
Cameron was interested in eliminating these allegedly mentally disordered weak people because they didn't like industrial society. A stronger personality, he believed, would be able to handle the brutal realities of an industrial world. Um, a stronger people wouldn't need things like art and architecture, anything good at all, in order to go to work. Because strong workers, according to Cameron, were people who had no appreciation for cult- He said all this, okay? It's not me making this up. According to Cameron, strong people were the ones who had no appreciation for culture and didn't care about elevating themselves outside of the workday. According to Donald Cameron, weak workers were weak because they simply couldn't cope with industrial conditions. You know, it wasn't society that was wrong. It was personal mental weakness in the face of brutalism. If you don't like it, you're weak. And this is an actual claim Cameron made in his 1946 paper, Frontiers of Social Psychiatry. So does he work for Amazon now? Yes, he does, actually. <laughs> run, run, runs the warehouse? Yeah, no, he doesn't run. Yeah, he runs the warehouse. And he does it with his chest puffed out and his back straight and a grimace on his face because he's strong and he can handle the brutality of doing what needs to be done to keep this whole thing afloat. Ugh, he's so strong. So anyway, uh, like I said, Cameron constantly used Germans as an example of a weak people who, because they were unable to suck it up and clock in day in and day out and, like, cared about art and things and, like, built Dresden, they had become dangerous. Um, he completely disregards, of course, the dangers of international dependence, which we're seeing right now. He ignores the devastation that is completely at risk when his version of global control is implemented. And I will remind you, when the British Empire conquered India and turned it into an interna internationally dependent nation, all it took was for the capture was the capture of Burma for supply lines to India to get cut and for millions to starve. And if you look into the history of the United Fruit Company, I kid you not, you can find some very good examples of this exact kind of thing. Are we having fun yet? <laughs> not quite. Yeah, not quite. Okay, so here's the funny thing. So in college, I learned about the United Fruit Company and how it's, it's basically awful. And I also learned that the United Fruit Company is deeply tied with communication lines uh, and has a building in New York City that basically runs all communication through the world, in the world, through it at a certain point. Um, and they're basically the same global corporation, which is just kind of frightening. And the reason the uh, company, the communication companies are connected to the United Fruit Line is, is um, um, United Fruit Company is basically because the, if they had phone and telegraph wires from delivery ports they could basically say when they had a shipment coming in and they could like get, keep less fruit from rotting it's it's all tied up with the money so anyway at this point Cameron began to look into what's called social engineering which was a new movement that was designed to end all war um and everyone's heard of it now right but back then it was a very new concept new frontier um and Cameron believed that a global society needed to root out any opposition to the overall attitudes of the desired society of the psychiatric, pharmaceutical, financial, and banking elite that ran everything. It's in his books. I'm not... It's... Go read them. In Frontiers of Social Psychology, he advocated for a system of global control that would focus on the creation of guilt complexes so that people would feel bad if they stepped out of line. He also believed that mental illness was baked into a ton of people, and if they were made to feel guilty or scared or sad enough, they would never act out. Of course, mental illness to him, again, meant anyone who thought things that were against the desired global society. He also advocated for prison camps, or as he called them, quarantine zones, for people who had a perceived mental illness, which who could be it could be virtually anybody. And, for example, he wrote a paper in the 1950s in which he believed that the right thing to do uh, at that time, was to quarantine people who liked rock music. 
he wanted people who like rock music rounded up. Um, wow, this is like this is this is beyond the boomer level. This is this is twisted. Wow, wow this right? is this is who they learned from. Mm-hmm. Well, this is this is who control. Uh, well, pops, so we'll get into that later. So he also believed that the police, the government, and the schools especially would be would need to use psychiatric control, as he called it, to stop rebellious contagions, as he called them. It, he described them the same way we describe viruses, he, to stop rebellious contagions from spreading. Cameron gave a lecture called Dangerous Men and Women in the late 40s where he outlined several personality types that were dangerous to global society. And here are the types, and I want you to react to each of these, okay? Okay? Number one, dangerous to society. A passive, content people. Those bastards just sitting there being happy. <laughs> right? It's so dumb. Um, he describes them as, as weak and fearful because they're just satisfied with life. And they won't speak their mind, you know, because they really, deep down, they don't, they're not happy. No, passive, content people. All right, second category of dangerous men and women. People who like loyalty. Absolutely despicable. Someone who you can't just buy. Yep. Unthinkable. <laughs> it's so ridiculously evil. All right, number three. People who like conformity and have a sense of right and wrong. How dare they? I know. How, how dare they? Wow, having a sense of right and wrong, that's just, well, that's wrong, I mean. <laughs> Number four, psychopaths, who he said are, (laughs) exactly, psychopaths, who he said are, quote, the greatest danger in times of political and societal upheaval. So that one's for you, Sith psychopath. I've only seen one psychopath so far in this episode. I was going to say, projection much? Hmm. So Cameron claimed that these problem people... Um, of these categories needed to be identified and swiftly controlled. It would be a danger to the world to not watch and monitor anyone who just might try anything. Oh god, he might try something. Put him in a quarantine. He used the Germans once again as an example, but also applied to other groups that were sick, such as the Japanese or the notoriously at that time uncompromising American working class. Um, and here's a quote from one of his lectures. Quote, <clears throat> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it in a scared voice, okay. Get it understood how dangerous these damaged, sick personalities are to ourselves, and above all, to our children, whose traits are taking form, and we shall find ways to put an end to them. And I wonder who is our children. It's definitely not ours, but I would think it's his. He's afraid that they might, they might, they might lose their uh, complete domination of uh, world consciousness, you might say. Yeah, so when you read this guy, he just reads, like, the the biggest pussy ever. Um, but also, like, he's so scared he's gonna do absolutely reprehensible things in order to make himself feel better and be able to sleep at night. So this attitude alone, these papers alone, the you know, the social frontiers, they call it, all this stuff alone, got the attention of none other than the American Central Intelligence Agency, who during World War II had been consolidating, you know, OSS and all that stuff, forming all the ah, CIA. Yes, the Office of Soviet Stooges, as it was known <laughs> among military officers. Yep. Um, theater kids, one might say. Oh. Um, oh, that was mean. I didn't mean that. <laughs> anyway, so they'd been working on a mind control program during World War II. 
And you know what I'm talking about, it's called MKUltra, and it, we're not gonna- we're gonna talk about one specific facet of it, we'll talk about some broader things, but... It's ten times worse than you thought. Um, so... MKUltra was run by a man named Sidney Gottlieb. A man born in the Bronx, who became a notable career chemist, and joined the CIA at the age of 33 Illuminati confirmed. I'm joking about that. I, I'm not even going to react to those. Any, like I'm. <laughs> Dang it! I'm just. I'm just trying to get on the whole schizo thing. Okay. Anyway, so Gottlieb was known around the agency as the black sorcerer or the dirty trickster. Oh, <laughs> um, good. Good. <laughs> seems trustworthy. Yep. His program was authorized by Alan Dulles, director of the Central Intelligence Agency from 1953 to 1961, a man who had over a hundred extramarital affairs during the course of his career. And even worse, the airport in D.C. is named after him. Yes, and it's got a devil horse outside of it, so there's that. <laughs> that killed the artist, by the way. Did you ever hear that? No, no I can't say that I have. Do you know about the, the devil horse? I know about the statue of the creepy-ass horse. Yeah, well, the one with the red eyes that glow at mm -hmm. night. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I th I'm pretty sure, it might be an urban legend, but I, I think I read somewhere that the head fell off on the last day of sculpting and killed the artist. <laughs> but, well, damn. Yeah, I know. Hopefully. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> so anyway, Dulles. According to Dulles's Wikipedia page, Dulles's Wikipedia page. Dulles. Apparently, Dulles. <laughs> According to the Wikipedia page, the most important work that he did outside of his authorization of the MK Ultra program was uncovering and proving that the uh, work known as the was a forgery. He also attempted to have the U.S. State Department officially denounce the work, but lost the case. That's the other thing. Oh, but he's also responsible for the presidential silencing of Joseph McCarthy and was responsible for the political CIA organized coups in Iran, Cuba, Guatemala, and France. He was also on the Warren Commission following the assassination of John F. Kennedy and was a big supporter of the lone gunman theory. And, uh, no, Dulles Import International Airport isn't named after him. That was his brother, John Foster Dulles, oh. who in the 1930s was put in charge of collecting loan payments from an impoverished country known as Weimar, Germany, which stopped making its unpayable war debt payments in 1934, causing international financiers to call in all debts off for new ones and cite World War II. John Dulles was also the Secretary of State under Eisenhower and used his power to bring democracy to countries that weren't democratic and were just fine without it. Dulles was named Time Magazine's Man of the Year in 1954 and was posthumously awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Anyway. <laughs> there was a lot packed into that paragraph. Yeah, but it's all there. I mean, I'm not making this up. This is straight up... This is history. It's just the history they don't tell you. They tell you about the wars, they tell you about the combat, they tell you about all the fun stuff, but they don't tell you about the stuff underneath that explains it all. Right? Um, where it's like, oh yeah, so the brother of the director of the CIA was the Secretary of State under Eisenhower. Like, they're brothers. Like that, that makes a few things make a little more sense, does it? Anyway. Yeah, I hate to see it. <clears throat> So, Donald Ewan Cameron, our guy, is working under Sidney Gottlieb, the the uh, authorizer of MKUltra, who's working under Dulles, who authorized Gottlieb to let to hire Donald Ewan Cameron to run a section of MKUltra, who is the brother of the Secretary of State. It's all very connected, and if you could just see how much red yarn I used on my corkboard, you could knit a sweater for the Pentagon with it. Which I would never do, of course. They don't a deserve it. Hmm, a Pentagon. Illuminati hmm. confirmed. Illuminati confirmed. 
MKUltra was the culmination of both Donald Cameron's desire to demoralize and traumatize whole populations to prevent the outbreak of wars, and Sidney Gottlieb's desire to discover, quote, Sidney Gottlieb said this, quote, he wanted to find techniques that would crush the human psyche to the point that it would admit anything. Can you imagine it? <laughs> right. Yeah. So the official reason that Gottlieb gave for organizing such a program was communism bad. So he was like, hey, uh, government dudes, we need money to find out how to interrogate Soviet spies because they're here right now. And paranoia for communism was at an all-time high, so they're like, do whatever you gotta do. You gotta get the information out of those Soviets. So yes, it was officially designated or de designed to develop a truth serum to be used on Soviet infiltrators. Unfortunately, it was the worst thing you can imagine. And here's a bunch of the things that they were working on. And this is actually a list we read off when we covered the church committee uh, way back in the day. So this is from the Senate MKUltra hearings conducted in 1977. So here's what they were developing. Number one, substances which will promote illogical thinking and impulsiveness to the point where the recipient would be discredited in public. Two, substances which will increase the efficiency of mentation and perception. Three, materials which will cause the victim Monster. to age... F what? Monster. <laughs> Three, the white materials one in particular. The white monsters in particular. <laughs> so materials which will cause the victim to age faster or slower in maturity, depending on what they want. Four, materials which will promote the intoxicating effects of alcohol. So alcohol? Yeah, they wanted to make it better, so I guess I can't fault them for that. But anyway, uh, yes. <laughs> CIA announces alcohol too. <laughs> Number five, materials which will produce the signs and symptoms of recognized diseases, schizophrenia, in a reversible way so that they may be used for malingering, etc. Number six, materials which will cause temporary or permanent brain damage and or loss of memory. Seven, substances which will enhance the ability of individuals to withstand privation, torture, and coercion during interrogation and so-called brainwashing. Which we... I didn't really write much about brainwashing, but that's a whole other topic. Eight, materials and physical methods which will produce amnesia for events preceding and during their use. Number nine, physical methods of producing shock and confusion over extended periods of time and capable of surreptitious use. Yeah, that's the one that stood out to me, but... Ten. Substances I mean, there's, produce... there's, there's a lot here. I know. I know. I'm just getting the information out. Ten. Substances which produce physical disablement, such as paralysis of the legs, acute anemia, etc. Eleven. Substances which will produce a chemical that can cause blisters. Random. <laughs> Pretty sure Close. there are a lot of substances that yeah, can they cause run... blisters. Yeah, they're into... They're into, uh... They're into their substances, you might say, at the CIA. So 12, substances which alter uh, personality structure in such a way the tendency of the recipient to become dependent upon another person is enhanced. Uh, okay. Yeah. What does that sound like to you? I'm not sure. Fluoride in the water. I'm just kidding. <sighs> is, that what, is that what's turning the frogs gay? It's what's turning the frogs gay. <laughs> 13. Illuminati confirmed. Or Freemasonry confirmed, sorry. I get them mixed up sometimes. Uh, a material which will cause mental confusion of such a type, the individual under its influence, will find it difficult to maintain a fabrication under questioning. So it can't keep up a lie, basically. 
14. A subs uh, substances which will lower the ambition and general working efficiency of men when administered in undetectable amounts. Fluoride. Mm, <laughs> definitely. 15. Substances which promote weakness or distortion of the eyesight or hearing faculties, preferably without permanent effects. 16. A knockout pill which can surreptitiously uh, can be surreptitiously administered in drinks, foods, cigarettes, as an aerosol, etc., which will be safe to use, provide a maximum of amnesia, and be suitable for use by agent types on an ad hoc basis. So, chloroform or whatever the hell they portray in the movies. 17. Last one. A material which can be... What is with all this surreptitiously? <laughs> There is a lot of surreptition going on, isn't there? Yeah, I don't like it, a surreptition. Uh, surreptition, hmm. Sounds vaguely Canadian. I don't know. <laughs> Syrup. Uh, materials can be surreptitiously administered by the above routes, and which in very small amounts will make it possible, or impossible, I should say, for a person to perform physical activity. So it's a rather broad scope, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, yeah, it sounds like everything from energy drinks to Satan. Yeah. <laughs> Couldn't believe what I was reading this time around. So let's look at what Donald Cameron specifically was working on. Um, he was working on what was known as MKUltra Subproject 68. Oh, it sounds so cool. have to have these, like, scary names. That's half the fun. <laughs> they think they're cool um, <laughs> doing this shit. God, they're such a bunch of fucking losers. I know. I'm, I'm, who are you working on? I'm working on MKL's just subproject 68. Oh, well, I'm working on MKL's just subproject 67 Mockingbird. Oh, wow. Yeah, they think they're very cool. So anyway, this was a program that was officially supposed to cure, you guessed it, schizophrenia in a population. Specifically by making them, making people forget who they are and then telling them what you want them to be. That's what brainwashing is. Techniques by which you can erase a person's identity, make them forget who they are, and then you can, because they'll be highly suggestible, you can just say, you are this, you are Jason Bourne, you, you know, you're this, you're an assassin, you're, you know. And Cameron was trying to find ways to make that work. Um... <clears throat> Which, for Cameron, um, the best victims of this it were the schizophrenics who believed were, um, you know, mentally deranged automatically. Um, and he was trying to create a guilty, self-hating, depressed, atomized group of individuals no with no clear identity that could be easily controlled. It's Gamork from uh, The NeverEnding Story. <laughs> oh god, I haven't, thought about that. I haven't thought about that movie in years. Yeah, well, you remember Gamork? Vaguely. He's like, basically, like, if I destroy people's imagination, make them forget that there are heroes, then I can let the nothing in and destroy the world. <laughs> oh, perfect. Now, I mean, yeah. that description, a guilty, self-hating, depressed, atomized group of individuals with no clear identity who can be easily controlled. I mean, looking around, kind... Well, anyway, never mind. It sounds like a conspiracy theory. I mean, I've never met anyone like that before in my life. Obviously not. Obviously. It's not at all real. No, no. We're, we're, all, we're all one. <laughs> so anyway, from 1957 to 1964, Cameron was paid $69,000 Freemason Illuminati Royal Society confirmed per year to drive from Albany to Montreal to work at the Allen Memorial Institute. Here, he carried out nice little experiments, little science experiments, 
that definitely never hurt anybody. These were known as the Montreal experience, experiments, and the goal of these experiments was exactly what you'd expect, to produce lifelong changes in humans through trauma. Changes that were favorable to a certain class of people. Um, the cowards, those, that's the one I'm talking about. Anyway, so, <clears throat> for example, Cameron had what was called the sleep lube. I don't like that. One. that. Yeah, I don't like it either. Um, and you're really not going to like it when I tell you what it is. Because there's there's at least several books, but there's one book dedicated specifically to that room. And in this room, Donald Cameron would use Thorazine to induce artificial comas in patients he diagnosed with schizophrenia. And remember, there's no official, objective way to diagnose schizophrenia. And back then, he controlled the definition. He was the leader... We'll get to it. Anyway... So, of course, his patients were clueless that they were going to be the subject of experimentation, and in some cases, they even knew it, and they were just like, I trust the doctor. Well, um, there's your it, first mistake. Yeah, so they were just sad, like they were depressed, and they wanted a doctor to treat them, and they trusted the doctor, but they trusted the wrong doctor. Often, Cameron would inject comatose patients with LSD while they were asleep, and oh, while they were awake. Oh. That sounds ethical. Yeah, but remember, he's a good doctor. Um, and he's wearing the lab coat, so he's very trustworthy. Um, and he works for the government, who are the <laughs> good guys. <laughs> well said. Absolute maximum trust. So, sometimes people would be in these hallucinogenic comatose states for about 86 days. That's, uh... That's a long-ass time. Yep. 86 days? Yep, hallucinogenic comatose state for 86 days. Now, I can't imagine sleeping for eight hours anymore, let alone in a coma having having hallucinations for 86 days, right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure no matter what happens, you're not going to wake up the same. Yeah, but, you know, it's not he didn't just like put them there and leave them alone. No, no, he 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 liked to shock them. You see, um, he would he would zap them with voltages that were considered unsafe by most of uh, the medical society at that point, while they were under on LSD. Um, and he would sometimes put headphones over their ears or play loudspeakers in the rooms that played back repetitive pre-recorded message the whole, messages the whole time they were under. And of course, they were mostly negative messages, um, but most some of them were positive, and they were but they were. They were, I don't know how you put this, they, they, they talked to the person who was under like they were a child. Right? So it was, it was like a nice voice saying, Jenny, you are well liked at school. And when you come home, your parents will be waiting with dinner. And then you can read a story and go to bed. And then it would just repeat that over and over and over again. Sometimes for 30 days, sometimes for 60 days, sometimes for 86 days. While you're high and in a coma. This is what brainwashing was. You know, people people who are like innovators in medicine, it seems like they're either like the best people or the literal worst people imaginable. Yes. Like pe- people who who yeah, make a lot of innovations of it seems like they're either like these selfless saints who just dedicate their lives to you know helping the uh the afflicted or they're just literal psychopaths who want to experiment on helpless people 
Well, I, I heard read somewhere, and this is, oh, it's a crazy conspiracy. Nothing's a conspiracy theory at this point. Uh, okay, that's partial. That's an exaggeration. I'm trying to make a point. But, like, I've heard stories of, and you can probably back me up on this, um, of organ donors who go into hospitals who, with an injury, and the doctor just lets them die because they get a payout for the organ donor uh, harvesting. Have you heard of this? I've heard rumors. I yeah, obviously have no proof. It's apparently a, an underground racket of some kind. I wouldn't be surprised, but, you know, hey, I could I be mean, wrong. I mean, it's been various hospitals have had scandals where they illegally sell the organs from people who die, and then, you know, family members will, like, end up discovering that half their uh, their loved one has been chopped up and sold. Um, so, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. So anyway, <clears throat> brainwashing. Cameron also experimented with sensory deprivation, which involves starving and dehydrating people and injecting them with LSD, just to see what would happen. Uh, and by the way, these were depressed or schizophrenic people who just wanted to get better. And they, they could walk in and he would say, they would say, I'm sad. And he could say, I have, you have schizophrenia. I'm officially diagnosing you with this and I have treatments. And they go, oh, thanks, doctor. I don't want to be a schizophrenic. I've heard bad things about them. <laughs> Uh, please treat me. And he's like, okay, just put this mask on and go to sleep. Oh, and they never gave informed consent to the actual experiments, which was in violation of none other than the Nuremberg Code of Ethics that Cameron himself had helped create. Well, those are for the weak people, right? You're right, those are for the weak those people. Those aren't for heroes like Cameron. Yeah, no, he's, he's saving the world. So Cameron did these experiments on adults and uh, children alike. Um because it can't get much worse than this. Victims often walked away with retrograde amnesia. Most of them had to relearn skills they lost, including some who had to be retrained to use a frickin' toilet. Um, Jean Steele, uh, a mother, came away from the program, and often her daughter would report that she sat alone in the dark and scribbled codes on the walls of her home. According to Cameron's notes, Steele was put into a coma for about 30 days at a time, she would wake up, be exposed to intense electroshock therapy, and then would be put back under. Well, if that doesn't stop someone from being sad, I don't know what will. I mean, you gotta beat the weak out of people, you know? It's, it's science. Can't have these weak people walking around not liking getting experimented on by this idiot, evil... <sighs> He's not a psychopath, Seth. <laughs> <coughs> He's just evil. All right. So patients would forget how to talk. They would fail to recognize their own parents. And sometimes they thought the scientists experimenting on them were their real parents. Oh, God, this is just getting worse and worse. Yes, and it's all documented. It's all on FBI.gov in their vault. Um, Are you trying to induce me to do something? No, I'm telling you, uh, you're weak if you do something. You're, you're weak. Sounds, Don't be weak. That sounds like something a federal agent would say. <laughs> so anyway, this particular set of experience uh, fell under a category of what Ca uh, Cameron called psychic driving. And it was done to children, especially children who had previously been sexually abused. Also, according to some sources, Cameron used one of these children to blackmail high-ranking feds by forcing the child to perform sexual acts with them on camera. Why? Allegedly, Cameron wanted more money for his experiments. And this one might sound a little out there, but then again, who the hell would second-guess that at this point? Um, I found some evidence of it, but that, that was the one where it was like, if that was legit out there in black and white, um, 
you know, if I could find the original document that said that, you know, every article I read said he did this, but I couldn't find any primary sources. So, you know, I just want to say that I'm not sure that one happened, but it is documented that I'm pretty sure it happened. Okay. (laughs) Thanks for giving us that vote account. Let's let's be real here for a minute. Does he really deserve the benefit of the doubt at this point? No. No, he doesn't. No. We make we make no claims to be in an unbiased podcast. Not anymore. <laughs> okay, so did I mention and I want you to tie this to the modern day. I want you to tie this to something that's might be going on or might not be right now. Um, while the, all this was happening, Donald Ewan Cameron became the first president of the World Hell, I mean the World Psychiatric Association. Um, he did. He was the president of the World Psychiatric Association. He was also the president of the American and Canadian Psychiatric Associations. And that was what everyone thought he was. Just a a trustworthy head of three major psychiatric associations all at the same time. He was just a really smart psychiatrist. And he got there because he was just so good at science. Yeah. Yep. Investigate the heads of these departments, or these associations, or these organizations, or whatever you might call them, because you're going to find some interesting stuff. Anyway, my leg is falling asleep because of reasons. Mm, Because of of Cameron. It's one of those substances, the CIA, they got you. Uh, I have schizophrenia. (laughs) They gave you the leg-sleeping substance. Oh no, now I'm going to develop a split personality where I have restless leg syndrome and... God... So in the meantime, what? R.I.P. R.I.P. in peace. (laughs) Press F for Aaron. Yeah, but my legs will never be at peace because I have restless leg syndrome. Anyway, so in the meantime, federal funding just kept increasing. Cameron himself got $500,000 of uh, a cash infusion uh, from taxpayer money just for his schizophrenia research in Montreal. Experiments of the worst kind, all in violation of the Nuremberg Code, the law, and all things holy would be perpetrated against Canadian and American civilians under the direction of Cameron and Sidney Gottlieb. Um, Who Gottlieb, by the way, was doing other illegal things like planning to spray Fidel Castro's TV studio with LSD and contaminating an Iraqi general's handkerchief with botulism or botulinin. I don't remember. Um... Throughout the 60s, the CIA organized an untold number of psychological operations around the globe, and there's endless reading, endless fun to be had on FBI.gov slash vault. Um, of course, we talked about a lot of this stuff on our last episode regarding MK Ultra, which was our episode on Frank Church, the church committee, that allegedly put a stop to all of this. Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> These psychological... Fun, t- what? fun stuff when you look up the uh, the MK Ultra connection to the Unabomber. Oh! What do you find? Yeah, it's like, oh, you find that when he was a, I think, 15-year-old college freshman, because he was very smart, uh, he was subjected to several years of uh, mental manipulation and torture in a study that was actually part of MK Ultra, where they were designing systems for interrogation and breaking people mentally. Okay. <laughs> and you know what? He ends up mailing bombs to people. I wonder if there's a connection. Huh. Years of psychological abuse from doctors working with the CIA and somebody kind of snapping. I wonder if those things could be connected. Uh, I wonder, but, you know, 
There's no way to know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, wonder if uh, wonder if he had a little bit of a grudge against that industrial society that uh, that you and Cameron was all horny about. Didn't they just make a, a series on him? They did actually. Um, I think there have been several. There was a one really recent one. Yeah, that was quite good. Mm, okay. What was, was it, it called? Man- Manhunt. That was it. Manhunt Unabomber. I've got to watch that at some point. I've also got to watch the Waco thing. Because the sentiment is rising. <laughs> so, anyway. Let's just file all this in the uh, the big filing cabinet that I always go to whenever anyone says, the government wouldn't do that. It's like, <laughs> oh, 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 let me tell you a thing or two. <laughs> why would they lie? <laughs> right? That's the best one. But why would they lie? Who gains from this? Um, who, who gains from a global pandemic? Yes, indeed. Who gains? Who gains? All right. Instead of talking about gains, let's talk about more of these psychological torture experiments. So these experiments resulted in techniques being learned. Uh, I'm sorry. Techniques. The techniques learned being used in the federal government's foreign operations around the world. Interrogation and terror uh, techniques such as ones used in the Iraq war or during the Waco siege. And they've also been used repeatedly on the American public en masse to demoralize them into a state of inaction, just as Donald Ewan Cameron had proposed doing at the end of World War II. This is all on public record. This was all declassified in like 2004. These techniques were used in the Waco siege by the ATF. They learned that playing the screams of dying rabbits and loudspeakers effectively terrorized their victims and the children inside. They learned that the sleep deprivation, starvation, forced dehydration, and isolation were all effective techniques in subduing whatever group they wanted to target. They learned that destroying an individual's personal identity from grade school to the grave was an effective way to protect themselves from the consequences of what they were doing. That's what they got out of this. And then I hate to report this, but while this was all going on out of nowhere for no reason at all, Donald Cameron died of a heart attack while climbing a mountain with his son in the September of 1967, effectively avoiding any consequences for his actions. Oh, don't worry. He probably wouldn't have faced any any anyway. True. Sidney Gottlieb himself ret- retired from the CIA in 1972, got himself a goat farm, and became an environmental activist. He also ran a leper hospital in India trying to for 18 months trying to earn back some karma and he I think he literally believed karma lives in India so he went there um, before going back to America and dying in 1999 for an undis- from an undisclosed heart problem. I wonder what he was actually doing to the lepers in India. Uh, God only knows. Um, yeah, and all these people are just randomly dying of heart problems. That's and you you know that the CIA tried to make a heart attack gun. I just want to believe that there was like just one good man who f- completed the heart attack gun and was like, "They gotta go." <laughs> uh, one can dream. One can. It wasn't until 1973 that MK Ultra was disclosed, and then only in part to the American public. And even then, the new director of the CIA, Richard Helms, had already burned most records of the operation. Nonetheless, the CIA used what information it had gathered to update their training manuals, including what's called the Human Resource Exploitation Training Manual, which is publicly available. And human resource, of course, being a human source for information or anything else you want, a human resource, um, and how to exploit it. And again, it's publicly available. You can go read it. 
Techniques contained in this manual are essentially instructions for how to break a person physically, mentally, and even spiritually through physical but mostly mental torture. The manuals also say that torturers must be careful to do more threatening than torturing because the threat of pain was more effective at this point than pain itself, which was also exactly what Donald Cameron wanted. So what are we to do with all this information? Well, just remember, it's all in your head. The lesson to be learned, I think, in these times, is that the fear itself is a weapon. Oh, and never forget, oh, I just never forget that, that the people who run these programs, they're the strong ones. They're so strong. And you, you're weak. And you definitely need them to tell you how to run your life. Or you'll kill people. Even if the people running your life are the kinds of people who torture depressed civilians because the torturers themselves are paranoid cowards. I will end on this. Below is a letter written to the president in 19, uh, 1977 on FBI.gov by a man whose handwriting is so bad I can only make out his last name, something Osborne. If you want to give a crack at it, go ahead. I found this document, like I said, in the FBI vault. Dear sir, to the White House, by the way, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Dear sir... This past Sunday, I viewed on television the weekly news broadcast 60 Minutes, which broadcast a story on Admiral Stansfield Turner, the director of the Central Intelligence Agency. It seems that he believes someone should have absolute power over the workings of that organization. He has not indicated himself, but everyone is sure that this is who it would be if this came to pass. Would you please be so kind as to let the president know that I am opposed to this? Quote, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. The CIA, believe it or not, has for many years now been acting more like a subversive organization than what it is supposed to, even though the FBI is much worse. I personally resent the fact that our country has a larger force of secret police and spy-type people than any other on Earth, and the fact that 1984 seems to be here already seven years early. I did not write in, into 60 Minutes because I am so paranoid about this organization that I think they might make my life difficult for me for voicing my views on the subject. Please don't misunderstand me, though. There is nothing I hate worse than communism, and I approve of the function of the CIA. I do not approve of what Mr. Turner wants to do, nor the methods of CIA practice and never have. Thank you very much for your time and hopeful cooperation in this matter. I looks like Rosen, Roser Osborne. I can't quite make it out. Yeah. So that's all I have. I don't know if you want to open it up for discussion. I mean, I don't know how much there is that I can um, say on the record about any of that. I know, you were pretty quiet the whole time, but the reason I can say all of this without fear is it's on public record. You just have to go look for it. It's it's not like a... I mean, they can't get you for knowing things that they declassified. <laughs> no, this is true. It's just that uh, most of my reactions to said things um, are less protected. Do you need to do a Neil Eckert and cock a gun right now? I mean, I mean, I certainly can if you, if you insist, I can just reach back here and. <laughs> Gotta love them. All right. Well, <laughs> I can't believe we did this. I think, I think with that, it's time to head back to the surface and close out. I don't, yeah, I don't know if I can handle any more of this. I know. Just do your own reading, folks. So, George, if you could pick one anthem to play while the CIA burns to the ground, what would it be? 
Well, you know, since we've been talking a lot about, uh, what was the word? Surreptitious things <laughs> and, uh, official narratives that maybe aren't quite so true and things that don't make quite a sense. And, uh, you know, maybe a song by a song that I really like, um, but also a song which uh, was probably written by someone who was probably also murdered. And yes, you guessed it for a better day by Avicii. Oh, dang. That that oh, would yeah. be the anthem I would... Well, I don't know. I think I might pick, like, circus music, because it would be kind of funny. <laughs> just to burn the building, all the documents. That's not a threat. That's just a fantasy. <laughs> Is this real life? Is this just fantasy? <laughs> I'm no, really I'm toeing a... the line here. <laughs> I'm not a psychiatrist, so I'm not qualified to answer. That's right. We're weak schizo schizophrenic people. Um... We just can't. We just can't get ourselves to uh, to get used to the factory. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm not an authority. You know, I don't have a degree in torturing children or whatever. That's true. They did. They did do all the child murder. And I've. I don't think I've ever. No, no. I know for a fact, and I can sleep with a clean conscience knowing I've never done anything as evil as any one thing that any of those men ever did. There you go. <laughs> All right, and I think with that, it's time to bring the show and the world to an end for today. If you hate us, you're probably from the CIA, so consider following us on uh, Twitter, Patreon, and in real life. Or if Patreon is want, not your we thing, we don't want your dark money, CIA. We don't want your we don't want your money. And if we see vans outside our homes, we'll just smile at you and bring you cookies, and then say you can't buy us. <laughs> but we can buy you. So, uh, if Patreon is not your thing, feel free to drop us a little tip in Venmo. If you liked this episode, please let us know. It's uh, Our handle is at WTADP. Once again, thank you, Clayton, for giving me the, uh, the, the kick in the ass I needed to just finally just up and go for it and start talking the real stuff. Anyway, so our cover art was created by Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration. You can always view more of his wonderfully whimsical work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. With all that being said, we'll close out and let the sounds of a better day play you out. <laughs>